uh, anxiety is huge for me. I'm, um, I can be very, very anxious. And then of course, worrying about a baby is, <laughs> you know, it's heavy, man. Is he too hot? Is he too cold? Is he eating enough? Is he sleeping too much? Should he be making that noise? You know, like all of that stuff, something in me broke and that inner monologue of questioning just exploded. Like I couldn't stop worrying about this kid you know i just could i just couldn't it was like i wasn't in control of my thoughts so you know there was that there was the worry there was the worry about my wife and you know feeling like i couldn't say i feel shit because i just watched my wife like go through hell in the delivery room and like we were we were blessed you know our delivery was long but it was pretty textbook for a first baby you know but it's still like it was you know it still seemed really savage and how do you then when you've watched your wife go through that and is struggling to get a baby to latch on to then say, do you know what? I feel a bit down today, babe. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Matt Brown, and you're listening to the Every L Podcast. Each episode, we'll have a different guest come on and talk about when life hands you an L, is it really a loss or is it something else? Because not every L's a loss. So sit back, relax, or do whatever you guys do to get comfortable as we get into this. Let's go. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Every L Podcast where we have different guests come on and talk about something in their life that didn't quite stack up the way they want it to. You know, you've planned something out, you want to go out, you've got your dress, you've got your outfit, you look you look the business right. But then it rains or someone pulls out or the concert's cancelled and you just feel deflated. What's, what's your evening now looking like? At the time, you might be fuming, you spent top dollar on whatever you've got to go and do. And then now, later on in life, you look back and you realise it wasn't what it was at the time. And that could resonate with some of you. It could not resonate with some of you, but it's just giving you an idea of, of, of what it could look like in terms of what we discuss. So different people come on, talk about different parts of their lives that they feel comfortable sharing and will highlight how things went, what they went through, how they felt, and how they remember it reflecting now, being the older and wiser version of themselves. So I'm excited, as per usual. I have another fantastic guest on here. I don't have anyone less than fantastic on these podcasts. Come on, people. You know my standards. And this individual, I've been fortunate enough to come across his podcast. I must admit his title of the podcast did stand out to me. And I was like, okay, need to listen to it. Then listen to him with his introduction. Then I hear the music play. And I was like, okay, this is quite loud. This is quite, I like this. And I just got hooked. It was just a thing. But more importantly, this gentleman that I'm going to have to come on in a second, he is so eloquent. Well, you kind of have to be to be a podcaster. But he's also genuine. He is changing the world by having numerous conversations around mental health, things that you know on this podcast I always talk about anyway. But it's so important that we talk about mental health for so many reasons. We all know that things that happen to us internally are worse than things that happen externally because things that happen externally, you can see it, you can do something about it. Internally, you can't see it. You can have internal bleeding that's worse than external bleeding. 
if he's talking about mental health and raising awareness around it, that is an important thing to be doing. And he is so passionate and consistent with this. He does many other things as well, but I'm not going to steal his introduction away from himself. But I want to say I have Tom on. So grateful to have you on. Please, Tom, introduce yourself as you see fit and tell people what you feel comfortable with. And then we'll go into your first L. Oh, mate. Well, that was a that was a hell of an introduction, man. I really appreciate that. It's uh yeah, it was nice. Nice, kind words. And I really like that internal and external comparison there, man. I've not really heard it put like that before. And that's a really, really lovely way of uh of looking at it. So expect me to be stealing that at some point in the uh in the near future, Matt. But uh yeah, <laughs> my name is Tom and I host a podcast that is called Proper Mental. And um I talk to all sorts of different people about different aspects of mental health and mental illness and mental well being. And that's it in a nutshell. That's um that's my you mentioned the name of my show that gets mentioned a lot um particularly because the words that we use around uh mental health is quite a topic of discussion right that we should say this and we shouldn't say that and they are very important and we do need to think about what we say but i always say that you can only use the words that you have available to you and everything that i do comes from my own experience of uh, mental illness and when i had uh one of my uh, numerous breakdowns um but the first one which was a very scary thing to happen. I said to my wife, I feel like I'm going proper mental. I didn't have the words. I didn't know what mental health was. I didn't know about any of the support systems and networks that were out there. I just knew that something really, really wasn't right. And yeah, that's what I said. They were the words I had to describe it. So the title, there you go. It comes from a, a direct quote from a, from an actual conversation. That's really impressive. And I think it's important that what you said is true. We use the words that's available to us. You can't do anything else. It's, it's just like, you don't know what you don't know. So just do the best you can with whatever you have available. And you have a decision to make. If you go with what you got, you don't go at all. And that's what you did. You went, you shared the fact that, yeah, I feel I'm getting proper mental. And yeah, I, I love what you've done. You've turned the pain into a passion, helping open up conversation, open up doors. I'm sure a lot of, communities a lot of companies organizations are now more aware of it their employees i'll say this on their behalf are very grateful to have someone like you that are having these conversations because sometimes being in a place of work that can be quite toxic quite oppressive it can feel like a pressure cooker and you don't have anything to vent or to talk about and you kind of feel like the way you feel the way your how your mind's operating at the moment isn't right but you don't know how to articulate yourself, like we've just mentioned. But then hearing someone talk through the different conversations that you've had with the various different guests you've got on, guy, girl, however they identify different careers and whatever else, those conversations will resonate with someone and they'll just be able to say, oh, wow. And it kind of normalizes it. And that is so important because there is, unfortunately, a the, the society has painted a picture life meant to look like this we're meant to carry ourselves a certain way and if we don't fit that mold then we're defective or we're copying an l and it's like that's not life bro <laughs> life is multifaceted life has got layers on it life is like as parents i'm sure i'm hope you can you can reaffirm this but when you've got young children trying to keep them in that bubble it's kind of easy kind of compared to when they get older that is like you know you try and prep this you prep that and you give them options you want option a option b you already you already know what the answer is to that you've the rest of them are no longer options because this is their bubble but when they get older and imagine trying to plan out their life for them oh that's headache man it's sort of like you can't meet this friend because that will happen and that will happen and this and that and 
that, that wow. So if you are a grown up and you have multiple children or even one child to be, or not even any children to be honest, but you have multiple decisions to make daily, that can be so tiring. And to consistently do it with no breaks, no respite, you're gonna, your your mental well-being is gonna suffer. Absolutely gonna suffer. But having a podcast like what you're doing, and I guess also what I'm doing, it just helps people to know you're not the only one running this race. You're not the only one going through these struggles. It's okay to feel some sort of way, but just know it's not a bad thing if you feel this way, but it can be a bad thing if you don't address it. So that's probably my spill, unless you want to add anything to it, I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, you got it spot on there, Matt. You know, there's a lot of power in relatability. There's a lot of power in hearing some of yourself in someone else's story, you know, whether no matter what you're struggling with, um, it's struggle is always lonely, right? You always feel like you're the only one and you always feel like you've got no one to turn to. And then sometimes to hear someone say something similar and that little light bulb comes on and goes, hang on a minute, I thought it was just me or hang on a minute, I didn't know what this was, but you've just managed to articulate what's been going around my head for months or weeks or years or whatever. There's so much power in that. And that's why it is important to talk about it. And it's why it's important to talk to everyone about it, right? Because, you know, different people relate to different voices and you have to see yourself in the conversation. And, you know, it's we, we need everybody's voices taking part. And that's kind of, you know, that's what I try and do with my show. It speaks to as many different possible, those people as possible about as different aspects as possible. Um, and just see what comes out, man. Cause it's, uh, as you know, yourself, you know, when you press record and just see where these things go, then, you know, sometimes hopefully more often than not, that's where the, the magic happens. And you have those conversations that can maybe, um, just shine a little light on, on something that maybe someone might be going through. Indeed. I, I definitely agree with that. I'm so happy to have you on. <gasps> I'm so excited. Oh, I'm not going to break out this song, actually. I just heard myself. It sounded like I was going to sing there. I'm not going to sing. It's not happening, folks. No, no. I can't believe I did that. I must be so tired. <laughs> right, so Tom has put on here that the first L he wants to discuss, and folks, full disclosure, I have no idea what this L is going to be, right, other than what he's written on here. And he's written medication. So I'm thinking he's got to take a number of medications and it made him feel some sort of way or... Yeah, that, I'm going to go with that one, but I don't know. So, Tom, if you don't mind, read it back to the top, to where you think it's relevant to start, and let's proceed with what this L is you want to talk about. Yeah, well, I wanted to think of something that, like, in the moment, you know, felt like a big, like a massive L, like the worst possible scenario, and then turned out to not be that at all. And um, through that lesson, I learned a lot. And for me, the first one that came to mind was was medication. And um, I I had my first mental health breakdown in 2016. It was kind of triggered by the birth of my son. And I now know because I've done a shit ton of therapy that I've struggled with my mental health for a long time, since I was a kid, um, certainly all through my teens and as a young man. But that was kind of like bubbling away under the surface until my son was born. And when, um, yeah, when he was born, there was no, there was no room for anything else. You know, there was no, uh, I couldn't absorb this massive lifestyle change. And the, the, the wheels came off and they came off very, very quick. You know, I always describe it as there was a leak in my basement for years and it was just dripping away, dripping away. And I never really checked on it. And it was really easy to just to kind of ignore it. 
And then one day that pipe burst, you know, and all that water just burst out and it flooded my basement and ruined my foundations and my house nearly fell down. And, um, you know, I had a lot of problems with my mental health and I struggled for a long time, probably about 18 months of struggling with that, uh, before we got to the point where I started, um, messing about with trying to take my own life. And after the first time I kind of left the house with that intention, um, my wife sat me down and she said, listen, you're not really, you're not well, you're not right. Something's going on. And I think you need to get some help. And I didn't want to get help. Quite frankly, I was really scared of what that help would look like. I didn't really know what was happening. I didn't have the words to describe it. And I was really scared that if I spoke up and talked about some of the things, the thoughts and feelings that were going around my head, I thought that I would be immediately sectioned. I thought that I would lose my job. I thought that they take my kids off me, you know, that I wouldn't be safe to have my babies. And I kind of resisted this whole idea of, of getting help in that way. And I said to her, well, I'm not, I won't go to my doctor, but I'm going to sort this. I'm going to fix it, you know, and I tried to fix it doing all the stereotypical wellness things. I started doing lots of yoga and meditation and eating more vegetables and, you know, training more sensibly in the gym and all that sort of stuff. And it didn't really work. It kind of worked a little bit. And it kept me going. It kept me kind of hanging in there. I started therapy around then as well. And it kind of kept me going until about 2020, um, until the end of 2020. And then I got really sick again. I got really, really sick and I just couldn't pretend anymore. And I had a, another instance where I was planning to take my own life. And I kind of had that all set and I had a date and I had a method and I had it all planned out. And I was saying goodbye to my family. They didn't know this, but I was kind of saying my goodbyes. And I had a conversation with my auntie and she, um, she spoke to me, she saw that I wasn't well and she didn't speak directly to me. She didn't come out and say that because people had tried to say that to me over the years, Matt. And I'd always say like, no, I'm fine. I'm just tired. You know, it's just like new dad stuff, you know? And, uh, so she didn't talk to me directly, but she told me a story about medication and how it had worked for her of uh, something time in the past. And hearing, we talked before about relatable conversations and hearing that my my auntie had, had struggled. I didn't know anything about this. She's the the loudest, most confident person in every room she walks into, you know, and the idea that she could have been through something with her mental health just never occurred to me. And it was meds that really helped her. And I kind of, I thought on that conversation a lot and I'd written this, um, this letter, I was writing this letter to my kids and in the letter I'd put, um, like trying to explain why I would done this thing that I was going to do. And as part of that letter, I'd said that, um, that daddy has tried everything. And then I was thinking after that conversation with my auntie Chris, I was thinking, well, that's a lie. You know, I haven't tried everything. I haven't tried this medication. And if I'm going to kind of go out, I need to be telling the truth in this letter. That's the least I can fucking do to my family. Right. If I'm going to bail. And, um, yeah, so I thought, right, I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to try try medication. And I'd listen to all the stigma. I'd listen to all the, the rumors and the stories about how it makes people like overweight and how people get strung out on them and can't get off them and all this sort of stuff. And I was, yeah, I was really, really scared, but I knew I had to try it. And I phoned my wife. I was away at the time. I'd gone away. I'd already said goodbye to my wife and kids. I'd gone, my family are from Wales. I live near Liverpool. So I said goodbye to my wife and kids. And I'd kind of like under the pretense of going to my mum's for a weekend. And then when I said goodbye to my mum and dad to tell them I was driving home, then I had this like little window, right? Where I'd said goodbye to everyone. And that was kind of like the plan. Um, so I phoned, I phoned my wife and I said, oh, I need you to make me a, a appointment with the doctor because I want to go on medication. 
And because if I didn't get her to do it, I know I wouldn't have done it. I would have found a way out of it. I found an excuse. My track record up until that point had proved that I was really rubbish at asking for help. So I knew I needed someone to hold me accountable. Um, so yeah, she made the appointment with the doctor. I had a telephone conversation the next day. By the time I was home, I'd come home. And um, yeah, within like 24 hours, I'd, I had these, these meds in my hand. Uh, my wife went and picked them up from the chemist for me. Um, I couldn't have anything to do with it. I was ashamed. I, I, I didn't want to go and like be in the chemist. I don't know anyone who works in the chemist. No one would have spotted me. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure they deal out these pills a million times a day. But, um, you know, I had it in my head that I couldn't go in there. I couldn't face them. And uh, yeah, I took that first pill and uh, my wife even, she put it in my mouth and um, gave me a glass of water to wash it down. She pretty much did the whole thing other than swallow it. And uh, yeah, and at that moment, I felt like a failure. I felt I, I, I sobbed after that. I swallowed that tablet and I, I sobbed. I lost it. And I just felt like a failure that I'd been so determined that I was going to fix my mental health, that I was going to find a way out of this hole that I was in. And I felt like a failure because I said that I was going to take my own life and then I couldn't do that. And it just kind of all this, yeah, just this feeling of, that was my L, you know, I was like, that's it now. I'm, I'm, I'm on this different path now and I've got to take these pills forever and my life's not going to be mine anymore. And I've missed my chance to get better. And I've just kind of like, I fucked this all up. And, um, uh, the opposite happened, you know, in that moment I felt terrible, but within days, these things kicked in. I don't know to this day whether that was, um, placebo effect you know because i was just so desperate to get help and suddenly someone gave me actual physical help that i could hold in my hand and swallow you know um and they brought me back to life uh, really really quickly i had all the side effects that you're supposed to get nausea sweating i couldn't sleep all this stuff but it didn't matter because suddenly i had like the i felt 10 years younger like i looked different when I looked in a mirror, I looked different. It was so strange. And uh, yeah, after like a, a couple of months, my wife even said to me, I feel like I've got my husband back, you know, for the first time in in years. And um, yeah, they really turned me turned around. And I, I always think it's important to talk about because there is a lot of stigma about medication and people don't really understand it. And people don't, they have the wrong idea of the process. And I always like to talk about it because um, whenever I do, a lot of people sort of relate to that that fear around around medication so yeah that's my first l man that's the it felt like the worst thing possible at the time and it turned out to be you know one of the best things that's probably ever happened to me really wow that's that's a lot it's a lot <laughs> like, i can relate to that i can relate to that to a degree because i think back in 2013 i suffered with depression and i was gonna go on antidepressant and i didn't want to get hooked on them because you hear the stories or whatever else. But I'm quite a stubborn person anyway, which doesn't bode well for, <laughs> depending on what mood I'm in. But ultimately, I did what I felt need to be done because I wanted something different for how I felt. And I, and I feel for people that haven't got that resolve yet in order to say, I've tried everything, when blatantly they haven't tried everything. They've tried everything they feel comfortable trying and not the thing they don't feel comfortable trying. You know, hats off for you for doing what you had to do because you called yourself out. You were writing this letter to your family and they're saying, I've tried everything. Asterix, I haven't actually tried everything. The medication's put me <laughs> yeah, off. Yeah. You know, you, you didn't do that. And you thought, thought 
nah, I can't run with that. That's not appropriate. I need to at least, if I'm going to say I did it because of this reason, let it be for this explicit reason. In those times, and I know you said that you, you, you kind of didn't want to take the medication. You wanted to sort it yourself. What did that look like to you sorting it yourself? That's um that's a really good question. I um I think there's there's a few different layers to that really. One I didn't really know. Um I'm like I'm quite a practical guy. I'll have a go at, you know, most things and I I'm really good at like figuring stuff out on the fly, you know, and I kind of thought that if I researched enough, if I read enough self-help books, if I went down enough YouTube rabbit holes, if I, you, do you know what I mean? If I like did all the stuff, if I ticked all the boxes, you know, yeah, I've read that, those top five books that everyone should read to understand their mind. And yet I go to the gym and yet I eat vegetables and yet I meditate for 20 minutes every single day. I thought if I did all the things right, that everything would magically come right. And that didn't work for me. And then I met it with aggression because that's kind of like, that's a anger is a emotion that a lot of men are comfortable with, right? One of the few emotions that most men are comfortable with when we're not necessarily comfortable with other ones. So when these things didn't work for me, I met that with aggression. So it would be like, okay, well, I'll just meditate for 40 minutes a day and I'll go to the gym twice a day and I'll read 10 books, you know, and I just like double down and I double down and you can't, you can't meet your mental health. You have to meet it in the middle. There has to be compassion and there has to be acceptance and they have to, you have to be kind. And, uh, yeah, I tried to get my mental health in a headlock and wrestle it to the ground. And that's what I thought I meant when I said I'd fix it myself, you know, I thought I'd just figure it out. And if I couldn't figure it out, then I'd just go back to hiding it. I kind of always felt like I had all this stuff like locked in a box inside my head and I could just kind of keep it padlocked in there. And then once that lid of that box broke, everything came spilling out. And I was like determined I was going to like push it all back in and get a new lid and a new padlock and a new chain. And, but it, it can't, you know, it doesn't work like that, man. It's like trying to trying to push push a, a beach ball under the under the water in the pool, man. No matter how hard you push it down, it pings off to the left or it punks up behind you, or you know, like you just can't you can't do it. So that's what I meant. Yeah. And I, I generally thought I'd find, I would read a blog and there would be one line in this blog that made perfect sense. And I would be able to do exactly what it said. And then I would be well, and all my problems would be solved, you know? And I think really, um, it's interesting. I can't quite remember how you phrased it then, you know, people have done everything that they're comfortable with doing. Right. And, uh, but not the thing that they're uncomfortable with doing. And yeah, that really resonated with me because I think that was my thing. I knew that if I was really, really honest about what I was experiencing, that it was going to send me down a whole different path. And my life have, might have been hard. My life might have been shit, but at least I knew every inch of that shit because I'd lived in it for years and I understood it. And the idea of stepping out of it, you know, like I didn't, I didn't want to, and I became trapped. Like I couldn't go back. I couldn't stay as I was and I couldn't move forward. And that's um 
a lot of the like the sort of experts around suicide that I've spoken to and they talk of when people get to that place where they take that really drastic final step it's not it's not like voices in their head telling them to do it it's it's much more everyday stuff just leads you to a point where you can't stay still you can't go back and you can't go forward and it's that feeling of being stuck gets people to that point. And that was, yeah, that was my experience, man. I just got trapped by it all. But um, yeah, really, that's the long answer. The short answer is I had no idea. I just didn't want to admit I was sick. I had no idea I was going to help myself. I was just trying to buy it, just trying to blag it, trying to just get people to stop asking me if I was okay all the time. I appreciate the honesty there because a lot of people are self-conscious. They don't want to answer the question like that because they're fearful of what the answer is. Just like half the time, when people get themselves in financial debt, they don't look at their bank account. They know they're spending more money than they've got, but they don't want to look at their credit card statement. They don't want to look at their bank statements because they know it's bad. They don't know how bad it is. And then they feel like if they, and I'm sorry if I'm speaking or assuming for people here, I do apologize. But if you then want to say, right, I'm overdrawn by a hundred quid. You now know that you've got to pull your finger around and do something about it. If you don't, you're then worse than if you didn't know. So I guess it's a way of trying to justify, well, if I don't know how bad I am, then I just say it's in this ballpark rather than I know exactly where I am and what steps I need to do. When we're trying to fix something, we're just looking for anything that fixed that jigsaw piece that we're just missing and we're scattering across going, why did I decide to open this box of 5,000 jigsaw pieces? Why did I ever think this was a good idea? And the unfortunate part at that point when, and this is really stupid, if you're having a bit of a mental moment where you feel, I can't cope, I would liken it to being doing a jigsaw puzzle of that size or maybe larger and you're doing something tedious like the sky where everything looks the same. And you're just struggling going, mate, I, I swear, why, 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 why? And it's so hard when you're in that and you don't have any external voices that can help talk to you with compassion, with love, with empathy, just to say, do you know what? It's calm. It will take you some time to get it, but you will get it as long as you keep going. Just put one foot in front of the other. You got this. But I guess it's hard to admit when you feel vulnerable, but you see your vulnerability as being a weakness. And you feel you have no one to talk to without them judging you. And it's a horrible place. It's a very lonely, cold, dark, damp place from my personal experience. Would you, was it like that for you? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. You know, it is a lonely, a lonely spot to be in. And, you know, you don't. Now I have, I have tools in my toolbox. I have ideas. I have plans. I have all this stuff around me that can, um, that can help me you know, and it keeps me well and it keeps me ticking over and it, um, you know, it's already good for me. And then I, d I didn't have anything, you know, I didn't know what was happening. You know, you, all the messages are like, talk about it. I was like, talk about what? I don't know what it is. And even if I did, I don't know how, you know, I don't know who to, I don't know when, I don't know where, like stop telling me to fucking talk because <laughs> I don't know what to say, you know? And it, it's, um, yeah, it, you don't have, when you don't know what's happening, how are you supposed to deal with that? You know how you, you can't, you can't be expected to. And, you know, it's, I had to learn, I had to learn, you know, for me, uh, first of all, one of the first therapists that I work with, and you know, one of the reasons why I understand this and I understand myself so well is because I've been in therapy for five years, man. Like I have, I've been, I know my behaviors and my triggers and, uh, you know, I, I've kind of, I've really explored this stuff. Um, but one of the first therapists I went to, and I was kind of at that crisis point, And he said to me, he said, right now you're drowning. 
you you know you're absolutely drowning and the first thing we need to do is get you so you can get your head above water and take a breath before you go back under and then we've got to get you treading water so you can just kind of hang in there and then he said and after that I'll teach you to swim and after that I'm going to teach you to fly you know and that really really stuck with me because that's how I felt I was drowning and then suddenly like I had the I had therapy, you know, and that gave me a little bit understanding. It gave me someone to talk to. It gave me someone to kind of guide me and shine a bit of a, a light for me to, you know, try and head towards. And that was me catching a breath, you know, and that was me. Okay. I've bought myself a bit of time here. I'm not fixed. I'm not well, but I've got through another day that's helped a little bit. And yeah, slowly, slowly, but surely I kind of like got the hang of it. Um, but yeah, you know, it is, it is lonely and, you know, a lot of the stuff out there, on social media and stuff is very surface level and it doesn't really help when you're in crisis. Um, I mean, all that stuff I was trying to do, all that like meditation and yoga and exercise, I do all that stuff now. I, I love it. It keeps me well. And all of that stuff is really, really good at maintaining good mental health. Or maybe when you're having a bit of a bad day, you're experiencing a bit of low mood. I was mentally ill. I was in crisis and there's a big difference. So when we see these things, you know, these, uh, these analogies and these sayings, um, so they're very applicable at some times on some days, but then they're not necessarily, you know, but if you're journeying through life and trying to look after yourself and trying to create some thinking space and trying to do something that's positive for your mind and your body and, you know, then yoga is fantastic. It's wonderful, but yeah, it doesn't help when you're, um, when you're trying really hard not to kill yourself, (laughs) you know? I can only imagine what it's like. And, when you said about the yoga situation, I couldn't help. And I don't know why I'm using car analogies here, but it's a bit like when they got the punch repair kits now. If your car was blown out, no punch repair kit's going to fix that. Take it to a garage. So if you're in a crisis mentally, don't go, um, maybe you should have done that a little while ago. Yeah. We're kind of at the point now where you can, you can put it in there, but that's not going to resolve it. It's deeper than that. And you've got a scar that needs, we've uh, got a big gash at the moment that needs some attention. It might need operation, might need stitches. We don't know. But it needs treatment by someone who is well-equipped, more so than we are as individuals to deal with it. And I guess only now listening to it, and I'm, again, I'm comparing myself to when I had my depression, is if we think about, and I'm going to ask you a question because I really want to know, but if I knew this at the time, I would have really appreciated it. But when you look at all these people trying to look slim, trim and whatever else it is, right? It makes you feel like if you're not that size, you're a bit of a slob. You you let yourself go. You lack self-discipline, rah, rah, rah. But really, if we all ate the exact same things at the exact same time, we'd all look different anyway because that is our makeup. That is our genetics. So why then do we assume that if we do the meditation, if we do this, if we have aloe vera, if we do all of these different things, it's going to work on us the way it's worked for someone else that's that's mentioned it. And let's not forget that horrible phrase that I don't like, which is don't let the truth get in the way of a good story because people are here telling stories and thinking, oh, but if I tell you what actually happened, it's going to jar the story. So let me just take that part out and just act like it's this. And you're forever and a day trying to do this and you're reading instructions. You're like, I'm doing that, but the results are not adding up because they took out the, the bit that I was really the main component that made that happen, but it didn't read pretty. So they took it out. And that's the part where if I knew that it'd be great. But again, like listening to you and your conversations and me in general, how I like to overthink, that's where I'm at, where it's about only I knew no matter what I do, like everyone else may not result in the exact same outcome. 
that would have saved me a whole heap of grief. When you said that you had your you had your first child and that's what kind of triggered you to be that way, mm. what was the reason for that? Because I know you said that you, you realised later on that you'd been tr- uh, struggling with mental health for some time. But what was it about, if you don't mind answering, um, what was it about that time that sort of was the straw that broke the camel's back for why it kind of, I guess, accelerated it to go, wow, I am not ready for this right now? Yeah, I think for a long time, many, many years, I've been really living um, inauthentically. You know, I had a, a, a job that didn't serve me, that didn't stimulate me, that didn't challenge me. I was just going through the motions. I was living a life that wasn't in line with my core values and core beliefs. You know, I was doing a lot of stuff that sort of made me unhappy, but because everyone around me was doing it. Um, a lot of like societal stuff, you know, I'm not on about anything particularly spectacular, but just kind of like boozing on a Saturday night and, um, you know, negative conversations and just the the same old stuff that everyone talks about. I had nothing in my life. My life was full of, there was nothing, nothing meaningful, nothing creative. Um, you know, so I was just not in a very like happy place at all. Um, anxiety is huge for me. I'm, um, I can be very, very anxious. And then of course, worrying about a baby is, <laughs> you know, it's heavy, man. Is he too hot? Is he too cold? Is he eating enough? Is he sleeping too much? Should he be making that noise? You know, like all of that stuff, something in me broke and that inner monologue of questioning just exploded. Like I couldn't stop worrying about this kid. You know, I just could, I just couldn't. It was like, I wasn't in control of my thoughts. Um, so, you know, there was that, there was the worry, there was the worry about my wife. Um, and, you know, feeling like I couldn't say I feel shit because I just watched my wife like go through hell in the delivery room. And like we were, we were blessed, you know, our delivery was long, um, but it was pretty textbook for a first baby, you know? Um, but it's still like, it was, you know, it still seemed really savage. And how do you then when you've watched your wife go through that and is struggling to get a baby to latch on to then say, do you know what? I feel a bit down today, babe. <laughs> you know, you just feel like you can't, right? You've got to, you got to, uh, yeah, you got to hold the, hold the fort, right? You got to do, be the dad. So I suppose all that masculinity stuff comes into it. Um, I felt a lot of pressure. I was worried about what sort of dad I would be. I was worried about would my ways of thinking and behaving you know, impact my son? Would I raise another worrying, overthinking, anxious, depressed person? Uh, just all of that stuff, you know, just the, the thoughts and the worry and the, the identity stuff. You know, I didn't know who the fuck I was. And suddenly I then had to be this thing. I had to be dad now. And I didn't really know how to do it. And I had no foundations under me because I didn't know who I was. So the transitioning to being dad just it wasn't smooth for me because I couldn't like I didn't know how to land laid um and then throw in all the new parent stuff as well you know so no sleep um my son didn't sleep through till he was two man so that the whole sleep thing was rough so yeah so yeah not getting any sleep and then because you're not making any sleep you're making bad food choices and you know just all that sort of stuff it so it was a mixture of the mental health stuff and then all the new parenting stuff that kind of everyone experiences 
Um, but they blend together, right? So someone says like, someone would say, how are you doing? And I'd think, oh, do you know what? I really need to kind of, maybe I'll open up a little bit and I'd go, oh, to be honest, I'm not doing really, you know, that good. I feel like shit. And they say, yeah, well, you know, happens to it, you know, new dad, you know, you'll be all right when you get some sleep, probably won't get any, <laughs> you know, all that sort of fucking bullshit that you get, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. Uh, fuck off but um yeah so i think it was like that blending of the two worlds as well i didn't know what was mental health and what i was supposed to be experiencing as a new dad who hadn't slept for three days you know like it you don't you don't know when you you go about sleep there's a reason man the military tortures people by making them sleep deprived you know there's a reason for it um so yeah all that kind of i think all of that stuff all mixed in but yeah so there was a lot a lot of stuff um kind of going on and uh, I just ended, I didn't have room. I didn't have room to absorb this massive life change. You know, I felt completely off off kilter, and it gave me more stuff to worry about when I can find stuff to worry about. I don't need <laughs> I don't need actual stuff to worry about. I'm fine. <laughs> you like inventing stuff to worry about, but yeah, it was just a lot at once. I think. Gosh. So, did you have any support around you? Did you have? like any other dads that you could talk to that were like friends already or did you was your work supportive when you became um, a new dad I mean I had the standard like two weeks off you know from work and everyone was like very nice um but you know no I wouldn't say they weren't unsupportive but they weren't supportive you know it's just kind of it just was I never really thought about it I never really thought about it at all I didn't have any other dads around me I didn't have so I mentioned before that I live near Liverpool my wife and I, we both used to work for a holiday company and we met overseas. And then when it was time to kind of finish doing all that, we moved to where we live now. So we've been here long. I've lived here like 15 years now. So it is home, you know, it's where my kids were born. It's their home. So it's my home. But um, I suppose this is going back a bit. So I hadn't lived here that long. And when you move to a new area as an adult, it's hard going, like making friends. You have a lot of acquaintances you know, there was a lot of like men around me who were acquaintances, but not anyone I could kind of phone and say, can we go for a chat? You know, I didn't have that. Um, I, my anxiety, my own blend of anxiety is I'm very socially anxious, so I don't mix well. I don't, I'm not good in groups. So I would always, um, find excuses. So even if I did get invited out, you know, oh, we're going for drinks after work. I'd be like, nah, I'm all right. You know, like I'd, I'd kind of bail on it. And then so I was really lonely. Yeah. Loneliness was a, a massive factor in me getting poorly. But then I could never admit I was lonely because, you know, the kids at school who got bullied, they were all like Billy No Mates. You know, no one wants to admit they've got no friends. So then I'd say things like, oh, I don't, I don't like people. You know, people who say it all the time, you oh, I just don't like people. And, it, it, you know, you think that's not true. Everybody likes people. You just don't like yourself, <laughs> you know, and you, can, you can't be around people. And that's how I felt. I didn't like me. So I didn't feel worthy of friendship. So I didn't, and I was too scared. I was too anxious in social situations and I couldn't admit that. So then I'd say, I don't like people. Um, I don't want to do that. I um, I always used to say some stuff like, you know, oh, I'm one of life's solo artists. You know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not supposed to be part of a band. I'm supposed to be on my own. You know, I like my own company and all that sort of stuff. And really it was because I, I didn't want to put my hand up and say, I'm really lonely and I've got any mates and I don't know how to make friends. So yeah, I didn't have anyone around me. You know, I didn't have anyone around me at all. So I was either with my wife, with my son or on my own. And, um, you know, and that, that, that definitely added to it. Loneliness definitely added to it. Brutal. And I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that. So in regards to how that made you feel, you, 
you know, you've got acquaintances, you're socially awkward for the most part because of it, you, you don't like yourself enough to be worthy of other people's companionship, friendship, their attention, their time, their company. It's probably the word I was looking for. I'll buy myself a thesaurus later or at least have it up on the computer. Did you ever let your missus know that? And I'm not saying that you had to tell her you was feeling down. I'm just saying that I'm here in this new town. I have like now all to do. No one to be talked to. Yeah. No, never, man. I'd never like, I would have seen that as showing weakness. You know, it was all, I'm okay. I can do it without anyone. I don't fucking need anyone. You know, it was, uh, I never would. I never asked for help. Never. Later on, as I got poorlier, I used to act up in ways to try and get my wife to step in and ask me those questions because I couldn't say it. I couldn't say to her, I need help. So I would act inappropriately. I'd get angry. I'd say nasty things. I'd say really shocking things. And I was trying to get her. This is all subconscious. I wasn't like sat thinking, oh, what can I say to try and get help? You know, this is all just when I, through exploring my behavior after the fact, um, but my behavior got um, bizarre at times. And I, uh, you know, and I, it was a cry for help, you know, it's because I wanted someone to say to me, you're not fucking right. How can I help you? But people can't say that because I wasn't, I wasn't asking for help. I was being a dick. And when you act like a dick, people don't say to the person who's being a dick, can I help you? They say, fuck off, stop being a dick, right? So how do how do the people around me know that I need help if I don't ask them for help? They don't, of course they don't. It was ridiculous. But in that moment, I was desperate, you know? I was desperate, I was backed into that corner. Um, so yeah, I never said anything. Um, the few times I got approached, I had a couple of comments, that auntie, I mentioned my auntie Chris, um, a couple of times she approached me and asked me. Um, my wife had sat down with me a couple of times and said, you are not well. We need to do something about this. And I'd always be like, no, nah, no, nah, it's fine. It's fine. You know, and if people push me too much, if people ask me, you know, they, they always say like, ask twice. Well, if someone asked me twice, I tell them to fuck off. You know, they asked me once. No, nah, no, nah, I'm fine. No, nah, don't worry about it. I'm good. I just need some sleep. And they go, no, really? Are you okay? I said, why are you fucking asking me if I'm okay? You know, like it, it I'd, I'd put that wall up. Yeah. Get defensive. Yeah. You could have asked me 10 times, man. And it, I, I, you wouldn't have got a straight answer out of me. But I am interested actually. You've mentioned it a couple of times and I've let it slide. But I want to know where this comes from. Why do you think talking, or why did you think, I'm going to assume it's different now, but why do you think talking and saying stuff like that was was weakness? Like, who, who, who taught you that? I don't know, to be honest with you. I don't know. I think it's, uh, I think with, my, you know, some people with their mental health experiences, they can pinpoint one thing. You know, people who have been through something awful, some horrible trauma, or maybe one big one or four or five small ones, you know, um, some people have that answer and I don't, you know, I don't Just some way along the lines, I picked up various, um, you know, coping mechanisms and ways of looking at the world and ways of dealing with things. Um, and some of it was, intentional some of it was unintentional some of it was just luck you know i've had a very unusual life in some respects i've lived in a lot of countries and you know i was a holiday rep for like 10 years um living in different countries and living out of a bag and things like that so i've had a lot of you know unusual experiences and that's probably all like bled into it as well um you know there's there's a lot 
there's a lot in there. But um, ultimately, I don't really know. I don't have to know. I know enough about my behavior to know to know the what. You know, knowing the exact why isn't going to change anything. You know, some people like to be able to say, well, it was because when I was three, my dad said this. And, you know, but I'll, I don't tend to, the work I do in therapy doesn't kind of take me down those roads because I don't need to, you know, I don't, um, understanding the, the what, the, the why doesn't, doesn't make a difference. So I don't know, Matt, to be honest with you. Like I say, all, all these things, all these ways that I behaved and the ways I thought and the ways that I felt, what really, really changed for me is learning to look at them with compassion rather than anger or sadness. Um, because at those times in my life, when I picked up these ways, these behaviors, um, that was all just, you know, the little version of me inside who, whatever reason was trying to protect himself, you know, he was trying to keep himself safe. And in that moment, he felt like that he needed that. And, uh, that that behavior at that time might have helped. And then it just didn't serve me in the long run when it became an approach to everything. And I kind of look back now and I think, oh, I just feel a lot of compassion and, um, you know, for that, for that person, for the younger me making those decisions. Whereas I used to think that younger me was weak and was fucking stupid and you know all these horrible things but i don't talk about myself like that anymore you know i I have a lot of compassion and and gentleness and tenderness for the me that made those choices so what was the turning point then for you to get us straight now because i know you said that you spoke to your aunt and then you spoke to your missus go book, book it for me and then you got the medication she pretty much did everything bar swallowing it for you yeah man but after the first one, you could easily just not follow follow up with that. What was the turning point? What was it? If or was it one of those things? Yeah, I mean, you know, at that time I was off work, so I had nowhere to be. Um, you know, I'm self employed um, and I have my own business, and I just closed it because I couldn't. You know, I wasn't well. My therapist had said to me, he "said Listen, you can't fucking you healing for you needs to become a full time job. You can't be doing other stuff." You know, there's one session, and he said to me, "The way you are talking and behaving is not okay." And I need to step in and we need to do something. What in your life right now do you have to do? What is non-negotiable? And I said, like Kim and the kids. And he said, cool, everything else goes. Everything else that you do goes. Getting well is now your full-time job. And I just closed my business that day pretty much. You know, it took me like a week to get through my diary and then bomb, I was done. And uh, so, yeah, I was off work. I'd know where to go. I'd know where to be. You know, like the kids were at nursery. Kim was at work. Um, and I was sort of spending my days just kind of like watching telly and going for long walks. And um, so I had no reason not to keep taking them. You know, I felt like I'd committed to trying it. I might as well. I said when I decided not to go through with my plan, I'd kind of said to myself, oh, I'll give it six weeks. You know, I don't know where I pulled that number from. Um, give it six weeks. And then if these pills haven't you like fixed you in six weeks, then, you know, you know, the, the beauty of like suicidal thoughts is that <laughs> the beauty of them is, um, but that you kind of see it as a, as something that you can always go back to, <laughs> you know, like, all right, I won't do it this time. I'll just do it next time instead. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's plenty of opportunities. Um, so yeah, I had no reason not to. And like I said, I was lucky they worked quick and some people, um, they don't get the right dose or they don't get the right, um, you know, type of pill straight away, or they don't have the right conversation with the right doctor at the right time. Some people are unlucky. I was really lucky, but because I've, I also think because I'd been trying so hard to fix myself, you know, by this point I'd been in, I'd been two or three years in therapy, you know, and I was doing all this stuff 
when they kicked in, all of that stuff worked. You know, it was like it, it was like it was like building up in the background, and the the medication was the missing link. To, it was the bridge between all the fucking the work that I'd been doing on myself and and my life, and the pill just filled that gap. Um, and then all of that just like fucking like kicked in, you know, and um, yeah. And it, so I suppose. Yeah, I just kept going. I, I don't think there was, I suppose the medication was the turning point. And then after that, things came quick, like really, really quick. But I'd worked hard. And I always think that's important to say. You, one of my favorite sayings, and I say it on my podcast a lot, is that you can't heal in the same environment that made you sick. Yeah. And it's not my saying, it's someone else. I don't know who said it. It's not mine. I've probably saw it on Instagram. But it's one of my favorite things to say because you can't, you know, you can't have all this stuff that is making you ill and then just take a pill, but still do all the stuff that's making you ill. It doesn't work like that. And, you know, I worked fucking hard, man. Like I've been to some dark places in those therapy rooms and, you know, I've gone out and walked in the dark and the cold when I really didn't fucking want to, but I know how good it is for me. And, you know, like I've, I've, I've put the shift in, they call it doing the work and I've done the fucking heavy lifting. And that for me, that's what made the biggest difference is that I kind of doubled down and there's times when I doubled down on it and I thought I was, but I wasn't really. Um, I actually, at one point I'd stepped away from therapy and I was just kind of taking my meds and living my life and enjoying myself. And it was, um, speaking to a guest on my podcast was talking about her healing journey and she was saying all this stuff and it resonated with me so hard. And I just thought, you know what? I'm fucking lying to myself here, man. I'm sitting down behind this microphone every week and I'm not fucking speaking my truth. And that day I rang my therapist and said, I'm coming, can I come back? <laughs> and just jumped, stayed in. It's like, right, it's time to be more honest. It's time to really fucking rip the plaster off and stop saying the surface level stuff that I've been saying. Let's really fucking get into the darkness. And uh, yeah, so it's been, you know, it's not been straightforward. It's not been easy. There's not been like one single moment. It's been years of of, of graft and work, but um, it's been really worth it. That's interesting that you sh- you saying that because I think ultimately whatever you do or don't do will come to fruition anyway. You'll get the results of what you have done or what you haven't done. And as much as we might see I'm going to use air quotation when I say it's, you know, successful people and they seem so hard and stern. It's because they potentially could have come from a place that we're coming from in terms of we've been in a dark place and they're refusing to return there. So you're saying that, you know, if you have a list of what you're going to do to commit suicide, potentially that could be sat there and say, mate, the ingredients still want to be there later on. So I could always go back there. Oh, the ingredients might be off, might work in my favor then. But, for them, it might be a fact I'm not entertaining them thoughts. I'm going to go ham on just making sure I'm relentless with the things that work for me. Understand why certain things make me happy. If I overindulge them, what's the, what's the impact? Is it positive? Is it negative? Who's surrounding me? Because the people that surround me might be a new group of people, but they might have the same intentions as an old group of people I left. And if they've got the same intentions, and in theory, it's the same script, different cast. And you're going to try and be healing in an environment that is the one that hurt you in the first place. So I I think it's, you know, being self-aware is very important in that instance, especially from what you've told me. You, you know, you had to visit some very dark places and because you visited them, you acknowledged their existence. So you knew how to deal with it. I've, I've got crap in my loft. I go up there frequently, but at least I know what's in there and I can, I'm clearing out gradually. But if I'm just ignorant to it, 
I'm going to be surprised by some of the stuff in there and I'm going to feel anxiety every time I've got to feel, oh, I've got to deal with it. Oh, I don't, I'm not ready for that. No, no, no. So if you've got stuff in your body that or in your mind that's a certain way and you're not willing to deal with it, who's going to deal with it if anyone? And that could potentially manifest itself in a way that's not very good. If then you're saying medication or you taking medication to help support your mental well-being, what is it? If it's not an L, what is it? What is it? Like, yeah, what would you call it? If you wouldn't call it as an L for having to take medication, what is it? Well, I mean, it turned out to be a, the opposite of a of a loss is a win, right? It turned out to be the, it was the thing I didn't want to do most. It was the thing I was scared of doing most. So I did the hardest thing, you know, and got the biggest benefit. So I suppose that was the lesson for me, right? Is the the thing that you, what they say, the answers lie in the work you're avoiding, you know? It's, uh, yeah. That's, yeah, but it's true, right? Cliches are cliches for a reason. Um, so yeah, it, at the time it felt like a loss and, you know, I'll take it as a win because that was the, that, that turned everything around. And from there I got better and I got better quick. And then I want, I kind of looked back at it and I thought, I want to know what was that man? What have I just been through? What have I just put my family through for like four years? And I started, I made a pact that I would be really honest about what happened to me. So rather than, because I'd just lied for four years about what was happening to me, I was like, I'm not going to do that anymore. And if I bumped into someone and they were like, oh man, I'm not seeing you for ages. When are you back at work or something like that? Rather than make an excuse that I'd like look them in the eye and I'd say, well, I've been having some problems with my mental health and it got pretty bad, but I'm back now, man. And like, I'll be back at work soon. I'll just be honest about it. And, um, some, most people were fine. You know, my biggest fear was that I'd tell people that I'd been poorly and they wouldn't want to work with me or someone had called fucking childline and have my kids taken because I wasn't safe or whatever. Um, but you know, most people like, Oh, I'm sorry to hear it. You know, my sister's got depression, you know, my, my wife's bipolar, you know, whatever. Most people are connected to this in some sort of way. And then that led to some really interesting conversations. And then after that, after those conversations, I'd feel really good. I'd, I'd like be bouncing after like, I'd bump into someone in the street, maybe that I kind of half knew and I had a, ended up speaking to them for like an hour. And then I'd come home and I'd be buzzing. And that's kind of what eventually what led to the podcast, you know, that's kind of, um, and I, I didn't really put a second L on the, on your format and I had a few things that I could talk about it, but I suppose the overall picture of mental ill health and, and suicidal ideation and everything that came with it. Well, the, you know, again, that felt like a, a massive L at the time, but you know, now I'm kind of doing what I'm doing and building what I'm building. And you know, all of it came from that place. All of it came from there. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. It's, it is a very tough one. And I've said this multiple times in my podcast and it's definitely an energy I love to bits. And it's a matter of, and this is where my head's at at the moment. It's right. It's like building stairs and walking them at the same time. Unfortunately, we don't have the luxury of having an architect come in or a build surveyor come in and tell us how to do it. Even if it did come in, chances are life doesn't work that way. So you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. But you know, you're building it as you go along, and sometimes you've got to work with what you've got. You use prick stick, you use no more nails, you actually use nails or you use whatever. And then if you've got kids, they're just jumping up and down. You're like, why are you doing this for? Why? Oh. But you're doing what you have to do. And every day or every decision you're making is just another plank that you're stepping on. And there are some people in your life that are going to be looking at you from a distance going, well, it's all right for you to take because you're all the way over there. And it's like, do you know how many heart attacks I've had in my poor life? I promise you every single decision I make is a complete step of faith right now. I'm hoping I'm going in the right direction. I'm hoping this doesn't just drop on me. I'm hoping 
my kids don't slip off this because it's a lot and you know those people that are upset with you because of where you're at and don't realize that they're they're the reason why they are where they are are sometimes the reason why you don't move because you're feeling judged by what they're saying and i'll ask you then if you could rewind the clock and i'm not saying change things so the world's a different place to what it looks like now but if you could speak to your younger self at your lowest point what do you think you'd say to yourself to help you help you pump the brakes a little bit and say mate if you keep going on a shrew it's an interesting question man it's an interesting question i'd probably say just don't be so hard on yourself you know i used to beat myself up man i used to say some really outrageous stuff how i talked about myself was uh it's shameful and i think that's all i'd say man is i had to go through all of it to get where i am now you know and um yeah and where i'm now is good it's about as good as as it can be it's about as good as i could ever really expected it to be so so yeah don't be so hard on yourself that's all i'd say that's the only advice that's the advice i'd give anyone man everyone out there is just doing the best they can with what they've got you know that's it that's all we're doing as human beings and some people have got lots and some people haven't got much and it's no one's fault is that comes down to luck and uh yeah we just got to be uh got to be a bit kinder on ourselves and on each other right i like that so if you did go back and say that to yourself do you think you'd have been in the right headspace to listen no no my track record proves i was not willing to listen to uh i have a fair i think i know what you probably say <laughs> <laughs> but who knows man who knows yeah who knows how would you need to have presented that information to yourself for you to listen and hear it mm. that's a you know what like i often think when i'm planning my show and what i try and do with it I, we've talked a lot about relatability and I'm always thinking when I have these conversations, when I ask questions, when I pick guests, when I do everything I do with it is how can I reach that version of me from like four or five years ago who didn't know what any of this stuff was? How can I reach that me in a way that he could understand? Because even when I was like trying to help myself and I was on the internet down rabbit holes at three in the morning trying to find answers there was no one out there who there was no like working class voices for a start. You know, I'd go down a podcast route and there are some wonderful podcasters out there. Uh, we kind of touched on this right at the very start, but I didn't relate to those podcasters that are sat in, you know, like thousand pound studios with the best equipment, having the slickest conversations that, you know, They'd be about mental health and then surprise, surprise, it would just happen to be two days before like a book tour's announced and it's like, all right, okay. <laughs> you know, that's like maybe my cynical eyes looking at it. But I didn't relate to those because their experiences were not my experiences. I can't, you know, everyone can suffer with their mental health and everyone deserves the compassion and everyone de deserves to get help. But these, you know, millionaires on their podcasts weren't, you know, they, they weren't, they, I couldn't see myself in their experience. I couldn't relate to it. And yeah, so I think we need to see people who look like us, you know, whatever we look like, right? But like, it, you know, representation of all types is really fucking important, you know? And like, yeah, so I suppose 
you know i think i'm just a very like average normal bloke and so i just try and be me and then all those other average normal blokes if <laughs> you know we're from working class normal families will kind of maybe see themselves in that story for a long time i didn't tell my story because i thought it wasn't dramatic enough i was like no one's going to want to hear from me like i haven't got i haven't been to fucking iraq and got ptsd you know, I planned to take my own life, but I never did it. I never jumped and got saved, you know, because they're the media representations of suicide in the media is always these like great big things. And on EastEnders, when they have a depression storyline, the guy's on the edge of the building and the police are underneath going, don't jump. And he's going, I'm going to do it. And, you know, all this sort of like chaos. I was like, I'm just a guy, man. I was going to work, <laughs> you know, yeah. I did some while I was ill. I, you know, I started a business. I left the job and started my own business. I, you know, I had two kids. You know, like I did a lot of shit <laughs> while I wasn't doing so well. Um, but it was all, I was just a normal guy. But that's power in that though, isn't it? Because you're a normal guy. By, by your own admission, you are a normal guy. Dealing with normal guy stuff. That's important. EastEnders is scripted. They've edited it multiple times to make sure that it's appropriate for TV. It doesn't trigger people. It doesn't do this, doesn't do that. You're that guy. So your story is perfectly appropriate for people to listen to and to hear your story yeah, i'm finding that now you know I, you know i share it a lot i do different things about it and um uh you know i'm happy to tell my story and different different uh you know this is depending on who's hearing it i can reveal different elements of it <laughs> but um it's uh yeah but for a long time i didn't i didn't because i didn't think it was big enough and um yeah and that's where i'm going with this is that's where re relatability is important right because not everyone has a big story. Not everyone's story is is chaotic and loud and dramatic. Some people are just getting through and not doing so good. And, you know, they need to hear something too. And that is ultimately important because we're all going through something. And I think, and this is going to probably be the last car analogy I'm going to use. <laughs> For those people that drive, they kind of understand the rules of the road. You understand if you're in the UK, people, if you're in the, you drive on the left lane, if you're going to go left or right, you indicate accordingly, you follow the rules of the road. When someone doesn't do it, you cuss them out. You don't care. You're an ass. You should know better. Blah, 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 blah. But then you don't understand the context of what the situation is. It could be a case of they're driving. They get a phone call because their kids hurt themselves. Okay, I'm on my way. They pick up their phone. You shouldn't have your phone out because of... But you don't understand what's going on. They open the door. You're driving past. You get upset because, you know, you should have known better. I was coming up behind you. They're distracted. You don't know. And... Much like much like driving, when you park up, that's the only time if you realise you parked up in the right place or the, or the wrong place. Because you come back and go, oh, that wasn't very smart. So when we're doing what we're doing through life, it's not until you kind of stop, look around and go, yeah, maybe that probably wasn't the hottest thing to be doing right there. Um, <clears throat> oh. So I told you I like an analogy. I'm really bad with this. <laughs> I like it, man. I like it. But it's just, those are the things that for me, by me, be able to break down complex situations to digestible ways like that, that helps me to process and to be a better version of myself. Having twins, I promise you, going from one to three, spun me. I was grieving. I was grieving the life I thought I was going to have because I thought having two kids, I can kind of cope with that. Three kids, you what now? What does that look like? So the life I built up for myself, I'm actually demolishing with my bare hands and I'm just saying, oh, I can reuse it. I can't reuse this because it's not compatible with three. Not all boys. One's a girl. So hand-me-downs kind of go and miss a little bit every now and again. And that's the thing I think we struggle with when we do have to take ownership 
of things changing our life. It's the fact that we're having to dismantle it. And there's a grief curve and there's also a change curve, which are very similar. They overlap in a lot of the characteristics. And once we understand that we're not alone going through that, and if a life event happens, we're then going to have to go, oh, let me just, I have to adjust this. Your heart could be there, but your head's not there, or your head could be there because it makes sense, but your heart's going, but I don't want it. It's, 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 it's normal. It is so normal. And that's why it's so powerful that we have these type of conversations and share it. And I'm so grateful that you've come on, shared your story, told your truths. And yeah, a lot of people probably wouldn't have done that. And for a number of reasons, they could have considered it to be the right thing to do, not the right thing to do, whatever it is, but you shared it. And I'm just hoping there's people that are resonating with your story and will just, if they know someone who's going through what you've been through, they could potentially then go and think, well, what do I say to them? I know the right thing to say, but how do I say it to them so they don't take it in the wrong way or don't take it at all? And that's why, again, it's important that we have these conversations. What I'd like you to do for the next two minutes, if you don't mind, selfishly plug yourself and everything you've got going on and where people can reach you. Mate. Um, well, do you know, before I do that, before I plug me, people can find my podcast wherever you find podcasts. Wherever you listen to this one, you'll find me on there. That's easy. Um, I think it's really important to say, because I'm very aware that I've sat here and I've told this story, right, of how I, like, I wasn't very well. And then I did loads of work and then I got well. And what I would like to add to that is that it's, um, how can I say it? I'm not perfect and I'm not necessarily like fixed now i'm not skipping around going like oh i've got this shit nailed i've got this shit figure out i very much haven't i um i no longer worry about going to that crisis point because i've changed i've changed the way i think i've changed the way i operate i've changed enough stuff in my environment that that's not going to happen anymore but i still have bad days you know i still uh i still really, really struggle in social situations. I'm still very anxious. I'm an overthinker. You know, I still do, do lots of stuff for lots of different reasons. And I just want to mention that I still have bad days. You know, I still have bad weeks. Differences, I know how to deal with them. And I really want to mention that because I think it's too easy to sort of say, I've got this figured out. This is how I figured it out. But that doesn't help the people who are at the start of that journey trying to do the figuring, right? And uh, I'm still figuring it out, but you can get better. You can get lots better. You can get more better than you ever thought you could possibly get. Um, you know, you might not, you might not, I don't know. Some people get all the way well. I'm sure they do. Hopefully that'll be me one day, you know, but um, yeah, I just, I wouldn't want to sit here on my high horse and talk for an hour about how I figured all this shit out and then elude, not elude to the fact that I still have it tough sometimes, man. I still have dark days and I still have those things to deal with, but I've got the tools to do it now. But yeah, other than that, Proper Mental Podcast in all the usual places at Proper Mental Podcast on Instagram. I'm on all the other ones, but I tend to spend my time on Instagram. It's where I'm most comfortable. I signed up for TikTok the other week, man, to see what that was all about. That's a dangerous place. Yes. TikTok's a dangerous place. You want to lose hours of your life at one time, man, just hop on TikTok. On such short form content as well, which is ridiculous. <laughs> it's bad news, man. You go toilet, you go missing, like Mrs. Cool 999, all sorts for you. <laughs> That's it, man. I'll see you in an hour. I've just blacked out. I don't know where I've been. But, um, is your stomach all right? It's not my stomach. I ain't come out because I need a charger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah i don't know how i feel about tiktok yet i think i'm too old but um yeah instagram's best or my website there's loads of stuff about me and about the show on the website as well 
No, I greatly appreciate. And yeah, you did mention it earlier, saying that you're not there. And I think that's a, I think that's something that we should all allude to. There's nothing we're really going to have in life that doesn't constantly need maintenance. You know, it's it's a done thing. We The only thing consistent about life is that it's consistently inconsistent. <laughs> it's always growing, evolving, changing. We might say, I want to raise my child like how I was raised. You can't. Because this, this, what the world we're living in today is not the world we were brought up in. And that's not just for one thing in isolation. It's a multitude of things, a culture, everything. So that's where we just got to be kind to ourselves, do the best we can, and we'll be okay. Keep it going, keep the maintenance going, because it's important to do that. If we don't, prime example, you, when you're working, whether you're an entrepreneur or if you work for a company, you do regular training. Because you don't know everything all the time. You need to keep doing new training to keep yourself on top of your game. From the employer point of view, makes sense. You want to make sure your staff are at the A game. And if they don't, then you can get rid right of the door. Different story altogether. But if you are entrepreneur and you're doing it solo or whatever capacity, you want to make sure that if you are an expert in your field, you need to make sure you stay on top of your knowledge game so that when people come to you and they're paying you good money, they're getting value for their money. So... Yeah, I greatly appreciate you coming on and sharing. I honestly think, if no one else, I definitely vibed with a lot of things that you said. Thankfully, I never got to this point of taking my own life. Well, not in my latter stage of my life. I definitely did um, <clears throat> when I was younger. But thankfully, I'm still here. Uh, things happen in life, and it either happens to you or it happens for you. It's up to you to decide whichever way that relates to you. But, Tom, you've been an absolute gentleman. You've come on. You've didn't have to grace my podcast with your presence, but you did. And I'm so grateful for that. And I'm so grateful for your openness and what you shared to the listeners. I hope you've actually taken away something, if not for yourself, but for others. And hopefully all these conversations lets you know that you're not alone in what you're feeling. And just to echo what I've said in previous episodes, that your right now is not your forever. And there's nothing about a caterpillar that tell you that it's going to be a butterfly. So be encouraged, be reassured and know that, We've all got things to work on. We just prioritize them in different ways. So do what you got to do. Keep loving on yourself like you love on your family. It's, it makes sense to you, right? I will catch you guys in the next episode. And of course, go check out Proper Mental Podcast. Go give him a follow. He's a good guy. Take care of yourselves. Every L. Every L.